We're thinking in this chapter of the final triumph. We've been looking at the book of Joshua as windows into Christ's church. And in each of these 12 chapters, we have been seeing different attributes of the church of Christ displayed in them from faithful service in chapter 1 up into this last study uh, or the chapter 11, uh, the final triumph. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak uh, will continue their battle, their contest test, their desire to win over the support of the Tory party. They will continue their TV interviews, writing articles into the media, seeking to persuade the Tory party of their credentials and their character and in their policies. They will set out their views on tax, on Ukraine, on the economy, on levelling up, and they will seek to win the support of those who have the authority to put them into a place of power. But the jury is still out on who will win. The bookies are still scratching their heads on the odds to give regarding the new leader. The gender of the next prime minister has not yet been determined. But today we come to consider the final triumph. In this chapter, we will see insights into the workings of God among his people, into the destiny of every believer, into the end game within this world. How will it end? Who will win? What will the last chapter contain? In Joshua 12, we have insight into the final triumph. We've seen Joshua's attack in the middle of Canaan, conquering Jericho and Ai. We will see this evening him turning southward to address the enemies in the south of Canaan. But in this chapter, he turns northward. He marches his troops throughout the evening up into the north and engages in a surprise attack on, the, on this conglomerate of armies which have gathered together to oppose the people of God. And in the strength of the Lord, he triumphs over them in this final battle, in this last chapter of the conquest of Canaan. The final statement says, and the land had rest from war. Let's think of three aspects of the final triumph. Firstly, the great obstinacy that is here in this chapter as the armies engage. A lot of soldiers were involved in this, you see, uh, the words in verse number four, they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. I don't know how you spent the hottest day of the year. Uh, we, were at, we were at the Silver Sands in, in County Mayo, a beautiful, small, secluded, kind of private beach. But yet, trillions of grains of sand. 
And this is the, the, the picture that's been set for us here. In this final conflict, in this great battle, the enemies of the north have come together, the text says, in number like the sand that is on the seashore. And they're using the, the latest military equipment at the end of verse 4 with many horses, very many horses and chariots. The four spoked wheeled chariots which were small and agile and fast. The latest developed military technology was being used by them. But what was driving this vast horde? What, what was behind the, their, their use of the, the latest military weaponry? Verse 20 says, Their hearts were hardened. Rahab, when she saw the, the victories of Israel on the, the east of the Jordan and saw the crossing of the, of the Red Sea, she realized that God's power was with his people and she gave herself to the Lord. The Gibeonites, when they saw the power of God revealed in his church, they made a deal with Israel. But these armies, these peoples, seeing the very same thing, hearing the very same news, become hard in their hearts. Not a reference to the state of their arteries or to the condition of the four chambers within that organ of the body. But it's their spiritual condition, their unbelief. And we can hear them explaining away those works of wonder by God. Oh, it just happened that the wind was blowing and the Jordan River separated. Or we always knew that Jericho was built on boggy ground. Their hearts were hardened. And they refused to accept that a supreme being was among his people. Great obstinacy lay behind the massive numbers and their dependence on the latest military equipment. Do you think Rebecca Vardy will ever accept the judge's decision? Despite all the evidence, She's refusing to accept that she was wrong. There's an unbelief there. There's a hardness of heart. There's a refusal to accept what is right. And it's sometimes in you and I. When we hear a sermon, perhaps. When we are arrested by a verse in our daily devotions. When our loving father and mother point out a defect in our life. Sometimes there's no change. There's a hardness, a deafness that can be in our hearts. Sometimes we express that hardness by saying to ourselves, 
I'll deal with that tomorrow. Sometimes we express that hardness by saying that applies to someone else. I remember a lady leaving the church service and saying to me at the door, that was a good sermon for the sins of the young people. And I found out later that she was guilty of far greater sins than them. Great obstinacy can mark us, it marked the people here in the final triumph. But secondly, gigantic opponents characterizes this final triumph in chapter 11. There are two great opponents, massive opponents, which are mentioned and highlighted in this chapter to show the supremacy of our God that the greatest enemies of earth will be conquered in the final triumph by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Hazor in verses 1 to 11 is dwelt on out of all the cities of Canaan, this city is zoomed in on. Why? It's identified with Tel El Kida in Palestine today. It was eight and a half miles north of the Sea of Galilee. But it was massive. It was the biggest city in Canaan. Jericho covered eight acres. Hazor covered 200 acres. It was situated on the main economic highway, trade highway from Egypt to Syria to Babylon to Assyria. We see in verse number 10 how it's described. Hazor was the head of all those kingdoms. In verse 1, when Jabin, the king of Hazor, sent out to Jobab and the king of Shimron and the other kings, they responded. He had authority. He, he was over them. He had clout. And, and when he spoke, when he summoned, the other kings responded. A gigantic opponent. But God, through Joshua, overcame this opponent. And a second gigantic opponent is at the end of the chapter in verses 21 to 23. The Anakims. The word means giants. And it's a word which has haunted the Israelites from the time they, they, they came out of Egypt. The Anakims. This was the group of people that the, the ten bad spies, as we call them, unbelieving spies, cited as a reason that Israel couldn't conquer the promised land. The Anakims are in the land. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 33. The ten spies say, And there we saw the sons of Anak, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And also, we seemed to them. Here were giants. This was the monkey on Israel's back. This was their Achilles heel. This was an enemy who had terrified them. But in this, 
final triumph. The Anakims are defeated. We have giants too if we apply this and reflect on its relevance to our life, don't we? In our wrestling, in our journey, in our struggles. The giant of self-indulgence haunts us, grips us, demands submission, doesn't it? Easier to read John Grisham than Jeremiah. Easier to sit in on the sofa on a Sabbath evening than, than head out to church. Easier to complain about our Sabbath lunch than give a compliment. More comfortable in pointing out the flaws of others than dealing with one's sin in our own heart. It's a giant that haunts us the giant of fear. What will my neighbor think if I speak to him about Jesus or warn her about hell? What will they think of me? What will my friends think if they find out I go to church? We all have giants. Demanding our submission. Filling us with lack of faith. And wrong avenues. But in the final triumph. The gigantic opponents. Are overcome. Lastly. A glorious outcome. A glorious outcome. The enemies of Israel are defeated. Hazor that city. That large city. Is overturned. In verse 19. They took them all in battle. The city of Hazor itself and those who had joined in this conglomerate were overcome by the power of God. Joshua and his army moved swiftly. They attacked suddenly and the enemies were defeated. They caught them napping. The horses were not hitched to the chariots. The chariots were not in line. This conglomerate wanted to come down the, Je- the Jordan Valley and attack Joshua at Gilgal, but Joshua took the initiative and moved north and attacked them in ground around Galilee at the waters of Merom, which was hilly and unsuitable for the chariots to drive through the opposing army. Guided by God, enabled by his grace, the enemies are overcome. Look what it says about the Anakims in verse 21. Israel cut them off. David Howard describes this word cut off as totally uprooting and exterminating someone. They had haunted them. They had filled them with fear. But now in the power of Christ, they cut them off. And positively, this glorious outcome is seen in the last verse the land had rest. Rest was promised to Abraham. Rest was anticipated by Joseph. Rest was longed for by the slaves in Egypt. Rest was desired by those wandering around the wilderness. And now, the final triumph. The land had rest. 
We know the value of rest. We look forward to our 10 o'clock tea break or our lunch at midday or, or, or the, the 5 o'clock signal to, to leave. And it's not so much for the Kit Kat that's in our lunchbox or the ham and cheese sandwiches with the pickle that we've put together, but it's the rest. The turning off the computer, the taking off the reading glasses, the putting down the tools. We value rest. The glorious outcome in the final triumph for them and for us will be rest. This chapter doesn't just encourage us not to be afraid in verse 6, but within the canon of Scripture, it has this greater insight for us that the conquest of Joshua is a prototype, is a pre-run, of that final triumph of every believer and of the church of Jesus Christ at the last day. In Christ, we too will overcome and enter into rest. We see it in the life of Christ, don't we? Opposed from the very beginning and that opposition grew and its hatred and inventiveness describes the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians at each other's throat normally are combined in their opposition to Jesus Christ. They crucify him, they seal the tomb, they put him down into death, they silence his voice. But on the third day, he rose again. You and I, if we live into our 70s, our 80s, our 90s, our eyesight will dim, our hearing will go, our memory will become bamboozled, illness will grip hold of our organs and our limbs, we'll go down into by the icy hand of death. But at that very moment, the angels of God will have carried our spirits into the glorious presence of Christ. The final triumph. The Bible indicates that wickedness will increase. That godliness will spread. That new sins will be invented and embraced. That the gay pride march will increase and increase in its embrace and its promotion and its condolence within our communities and within our nation. Until Christ returns if we'd read from Revelation uh, chapter 19, we would have read that he has a name embossed on his robe. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we ask ourselves today, am I on the right side? Or maybe we ask ourselves, do my friends know what side I'm on? The side of good. The side of light. The side of God. The side of Jesus. Perhaps we need to change sides today. And there is a cost involved. There is a loneliness Self-sacrifice, 
taking up of her cross day by day, but speak to Jessica Stenson from Australia today, who won the ladies' marathon yesterday, and ask her, was the pain worth it? Yes, you'll say. Every ounce of it. Every step of it. We too, through the final triumph, will enter into rest.